Hey, what's up? You're listening to Mogul. My name is Brandon Jenkins. For this episode, we've got something a bit different for you guys. A live show celebrating the life and career of the late, great Reggie Osei, also known as Combat Jack. Reggie was the host of the first season of Mogul, and we lost him to colon cancer in 2017. So in this episode, we're going to pay tribute to our good friend. But before we get into it, I want to encourage you all to go back and listen to the previous episode of Mogul, The Life and Times of Reggie Osei. If that episode tells the story of Reggie's life like a movie, then this live show, well, it would be something more like the director's commentary with deleted scenes. We had over 200 hip-hop heads gathered in Brooklyn to chop it up about the pivotal moments in Reggie's life. And on top of that, we reunited the cast of the Combat Jack show. This is an episode of Mogul that you don't want to miss. Thank you all. Yo, 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 yo. I was like really nervous. Like, what if they don't clap? Um, my name is Brandon Jenkins. Some of you in the audience know me as Jinx. Um, I want to thank you all for coming out tonight and welcome you all to Mogul Live, a celebration of the life and times of Reggie Osei. Reggie meant a lot to a lot of different people. When you think about his storylines and the things that he was able to do, how did you do that all in, in the lifetime? So tonight we're going to be hearing from a lot of different people from Reggie's story, people that he held closest to him, people that also helped to build his legacy. But before we get there, um, I just want to share a personal story about Reggie for myself. I'm going to sit down for this. When I met Reggie, I was just starting out. I was pretty young in the game. No name, no resume to anything that I had really put together. And Reggie made sure to kind of look out for us. He did that for a lot of us. I'm sure some of you in this room have the same story. He didn't just kick open doors. He would invite you in. I remember seeing Reggie at a point in time where I had a little bit of stain and maybe I could make some decisions, but I wasn't really doing shit. He used to tell me like, yo, you should podcast. You should podcast. And I would fight him on it. Like me? Nah, I can't do that. Like, that's not me. That's your thing. He's like, there's more room. Meanwhile, this is him in the thralls of the Combat Jack show, him creating a space for more people to come in. And I still fought him on it, but he saw something in me that I didn't see. And he was one of those people. I think that was his gift even more than telling stories, is that he could see things in you that you couldn't see for yourself. It's one thing to kick down the door, but it's even more important if someone walks you through that door after him. So if you guys could just give a round of applause. And so... We'll get ready to start the celebration. Um, Reggie, again, he was a, a podcaster, a lawyer, an entrepreneur, a mentor, a hip-hop pioneer, a, a, a father, a friend. He was so much to so many people. And so tonight we're going to be hearing from many of the people that shared their stories with us, all of whom helped to make this tribute episode for Reggie a reality. So with that being said, we want to bring a couple people to the stage to talk to us about Reggie and his childhood. And for Reggie, that was growing up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn in the 70s, growing up hip-hop, like not skinny jeans hip-hop, like hip-hop, hip-hop. Talking about fat laces, we're talking about boom boxes, park jams, graffiti on the walls. I, I'm just imagining because I wasn't there. But Reggie tells that story very well. So in order to do that, we want to bring up Reggie's cousin, Fritz Celestin, and the notorious Dallas Penn.
Guys, thank you for coming here tonight. I knew Reggie as combat first, so you all knew him more intimately as a friend and Fritz, you as his cousin. What was Reggie like as a kid growing up in Crown Heights in the thralls of hip hop? Um, how was Reggie growing up? Uh, that's a question people ask me all the time. He was just the kid uh, that I knew had to be in the limelight. He was constantly in the middle of like a circle, a circle of friends. Um, he wanted to be a rapper, but wasn't really gifted in that part. <laughs> but he, he was the first guy that introduced me to uh, hip hop. I have a story where he took me one time and he said, Fritz, come over uh, to Crown Heights. We're having a block party. And I had never been to a block party because I was, you know, I, I grew up in Park Slope, which is, you know, not the hardest neighborhood Burr. in Brooklyn. <laughs> Although back then it still had, you know, you might have a problem walking down. In, had some energy. In, you know, yeah. Um, so anyway, he lives in Crown Heights. So I said, sure, let me come down and check it out. So we went there and um, it was cool. And it was the first time I saw, you know, MCs just rapping with the DJ, you know, DJ cutting it up. And I was like, amazing. Reggie was like, yeah, yeah, I know this dude. He lives at the block, blah, 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 blah. His boy Frank was there. He was a little bit older than us. Frank was like, you know, more of like, he was like our, our security guard. Like he would take care of us because he knew we weren't really in that kind of lifestyle at that time. But he would look over us. And I remember distinctly just hanging out and enjoying the vibes, enjoying the rapper. And there was some break dances, and I got into break dancing a little bit. And Reggie was like, yeah, he knew all the rappers, the MC. And then all of a sudden, you know, you heard these, like, noises. I thought it was like fireworks. I was like, oh, wow, they got fireworks here? So, <laughs> so I looked around, and I saw everybody running. And I was like, where's everybody running? Reggie was like, come on, nigga, let's go. I was like, where are we going? He's like, let's go. I said, you live right there. Where are we going? And then Frank was like, come on, jump in the car, jump in the car. So we jumped in his car. I said, where are we going? It's a, it's a shootout. I was like, what? And Reggie was like, Reggie was very calm. And I was like freaking out. And I was like, holy shit, man. What, should we call the cops? He said, no, we need to get out of here. <laughs> so, so that was a, 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 a good experience with Reg and showed that. <laughs> he was calm and cool. I like to tell people that he was immersed in the culture even back then that he was part of the culture, he knew exactly what to do. You know, it was, it was already ingrained in him that I didn't even know. So he introduced me to that whole world. And Dallas, you came around a similar time as well, right? Uh, well, I mean, I grew up in New York City at a similar time, but I grew up in Queens. Well, tell me about the park jams out there and what we might have been seeing out there. I mean, the, the, the same thing that's happening in Brooklyn is happening in Queens, it's happening through the city. And I mean, to, to really contextualize what's going on, is that the, the federal government said for cities, you know, I, I ain't got nothing but love for y'all. So, I mean, big cities, New York, Detroit, Chicago, were kind of left to their own devices. And what that meant is during the summer, um, you, you could basically, I mean, police weren't really concerned with people knocking each other over the head. They were, they were concerned with uh, the drug trade, heroin was, was heavy in the streets then. And, um, Prostitution was a big problem in the streets then. So, I mean, neighborhood block parties, I mean, you could go to a lamppost, open up the back of it, pull power, and basically have a, have a party going on. And, I mean, provided no one shot anything, the police probably wouldn't bother you guys. I mean, the police wouldn't come. Eventually, I mean, people would disperse anyway. I mean, around midnight, you had to go home anyway. 
Your parents let you rock for a little while, but <laughs> at midnight, you know, y'all all know the rules growing up then. When the streetlights came on, you had to be home. Unless it was a block party, then you got to stay out a little later. But um, I mean, just throughout the city was this, was this kind of energy that came from kind of leaving people to their own devices and not really providing any resources for them. So I mean, like, you know, an empty lot with a mattress, that's a, that's a jungle gym. That's where people learn gymnastics. And I mean I, I mean, I say this now, and it sounds kind of quaint, sounds kind of funny, but literally, th this is your playground. So it's, it's found items, and it's found things, and you cobble them together, and you make something. When and and that, that is, that's, that's really the, the birth of hip hop. So Reggie's coming up, um, and our influences are just every, everything that's, that's on the radio, everything that's on television, and that could be disco, uh, that could be classic rock like Steely Dan, um, that's comic books for sure. I mean, that's, that's an incredible visual medium for us kids. Um, it's, you know, it's the subways when you could hop a train and not worry about police and go anywhere in the city. So you've just got this, all this energy that's going on and, and you just got to figure out where to, where to place it, where to put it. And, and the sun is throwing rays at this planet and people are vibrating to, to the rhythm of those cosmic rays. And, and the people that fucked with hip hop, they vibrated the same way. You know, part of the vibrations of hip hop was also your, um, your presentation, right? Like if you do go out to those block parties, you gotta come correct. Now we've heard stories about Reggie's dress code back in the day, his style, his, his swag, his fits. You described a story with Reggie that, um, that I personally love that did make it to the episode. We want to actually get a chance to play it tonight. His first year in Cornell, freshman year, was as an art student, right? He continued his hip-hop fashion. That's when he really flourished in the hip-hop role. Reggie would, would really stand out on campus because he would walk around in all the hip-hop gear. He had all the freshest clothes. You know, the white kids look at him like, what is this? Like, you know, walking around in his giant shirling, sheepskin coats, glasses, the Kango, you know, the hats. Back then, the dirtier the sneaker was cool. You know, sneakers were meant to be dirty. They were torn up and whatever. So white kids couldn't understand, like, why are you, you know, brushing the suede on your pumas and stuff? Like, like what, what is that? It would drive white kids crazy. Now, all everybody wants, like, these these immaculate sneakers. But back then, it was strictly urban it was a black thing you know he was definitely the fashion icon of hip-hop at cornell i could say that and anybody will tell you that's a fact <laughs> so dallas when you hear that dress code the shirlings the, the clean sneakers is that is that on point is that proper i mean I, I when i when reggie and i finally connected i mean reggie still had swag he still had style but i mean he was four kids deep so he he, he couldn't <laughs> He, he wasn't allowed to be a hype beast, okay? I mean, I don't have any children, so I'm still a hype beast, all right? You know, I mean, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, but, but Reg definitely had his, had his swag and had his style, but he was definitely, he was of that time. And, and, and honestly, a sheepskin with, with a matching hat, with kazals, that, that is that time. He's at that time. And I, I, but I love teasing him, you know, when I came to meet him because, I mean, you know, he was, um, he was of that time and he was still in that time, too. 
you know, and here we are, you know, in the 2000s and people wearing spaceship shit. And he, and here go, here go Reggie you know, in you know, jean shorts and jorts yeah. and stuff like that. Do you, do you know when um, he used to come to my house, because, you know, we, we're, you know we, we both come from uh, strict Haitian families, mm -hmm. but my parents were uh, a lot more sh uh, stricter, you know. So when he would come over to my house, he would take off his hip-hop gear because, you know, back in the Haitian family in my house, that was looked upon as, you know, just dealing with the streets, thuggery, whatever. So he would take his earring off. Because my mother would always say, why don't you tie your shoelaces, Reggie? You're going to <laughs> fall down. And he was like, this is the last thing you got to understand. This is the style. This is the style. She was like, no, no, no. Those are the guys I see on the police reports. I was like, no. <laughs> Let me tell you something about his house, though. The, the legend of his house. Now, before I even knew these guys, I used to come to his crib uh, for Labor Day weekend. Before you knew him? Before I knew them. Even before I knew them. Because I, I had a homegirl that lived on the other side of Flatbush Avenue. And this house was so legendary. The, the bashments were so legendary that you went there, you ate free, you, 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 you drunk, you got fucked up. I mean, excuse me. You, you had a good time. You had a good time. Like, like, I'm telling you, when I say you vibrate the same way, I never even knew them, but I knew that this dude's house, I was going to go there and, 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 and just get it, get it set off. <laughs> yeah. And, and Reggie was always our, our host, MC for the night. Mm. He would get the party live and, you know, he was the, one of the original founding members of the Mac Pack. I've heard about the Mac Pack stories. Yes, indeed. So we heard, you see very, very early elements of who Reggie would go on to become in those early days at Crown Heights, uh, party in New York City coming up hip hop. Well, we want to transition to Reggie at, after Cornell University when he goes on to become the hip hop lawyer. We're going to bring these guys back up here, but if you guys can just give him a round of applause real quick. So after attending Cornell University where Reggie was Mr. Hip Hop in the Sherling Jackets, he went on to graduate from Georgetown and eventually becoming a lawyer. At some point after, he set out and started his own firm where he joined uh, Ed Woods and started Osei and Woods, which went on to become the first hip hop law firm. At that point in time, there was really nothing like it. He was a pioneer in his space and he really started to set the form. So with that being said, we wanna bring up some people that, uh, that knew Reggie in those early days. His former colleagues, Naima Cochran, James McMillan, and also, Mr. Kim Van Osei. So, before we toss to a clip of Reggie as a lawyer, um, we, you guys caught him in the very early days of him becoming a hip-hop lawyer, right? And there was really nothing like this out in the arena, right? Like, there's no, there's no format for this. There's no space for this. What was Reggie like in the early years of Reggie as Reggie the lawyer? I will say that my first experience of Reggie was very different than Reggie's personality as combat because the office was a little crazy, and Reggie was the straight man um, to Ed's everything else. Um, to Edwards is everything else. And to me, I was maybe 21, 22. Reggie was only 32, but he just felt much older and wiser. He already 
you guys already had maybe three. I don't know. One, yeah, two, three. Two, two, three. <laughs> um, but you know, he was he was a dad. He was a husband, um, and he would like sit me down and want to talk to me about stuff. Like, you know, we were out every night, and it was. For those of you guys who are under 30, every music video you ever saw from the late 90s, it was exactly like that. It was exactly <laughs> like that. But he, I was the only woman in the office. So he was very protective and didn't want me to get caught up. So he would come and sit me down and actually say, like, what's your plan? Like, what do you want to do in a few years? And, and then when I saw Reggie later, as he started, you know, after he stopped practicing and he was combat, like, I saw the wilder side of Reggie. But to me, Reggie was like, he was the voice of reason in the office. Like, when stuff was going crazy, I'd go to Reggie. Like, yo, everybody's wilding. What's going on? You know, because he, to me, he was like the sage. Well, before you get to, I like that you said all that because we want to play this clip of Reggie um, told by DJ Clark Kent, who's one of Reggie's first clients. I never had a lawyer who represented me like Reggie. When Slick Rick came home from jail, Leo Cohen called me and he was like, yo, I want, to, I want you to produce Slick Rick's album. And I'm like, okay, cool. He's like, I'm going to let you A&R and executive produce the album. I'm like, okay, cool. So he comes up with a number and he goes, well, this is what I'm going to pay you. So I was like, well, call my lawyer. He called a lawyer. A lawyer calls me. He's like, yo, this is what he's talking about. I said, yeah, fuck that. This is what we're going to get. And this is what you're going to go back and tell him. So Reg was like, fuck that. Those exact words. Fuck that. This is what we need. And, and Leo Cohen's going off. He had a three-day argument with Leo Cohen to end up where I wanted to be. <laughs> to the point where when I saw Leo after, he was like, you've got a very, very good lawyer. He's willing to go to bat for you, Clark. I don't know who he is yet, but he's really good. And then he ended up working with him. Damn. Damn. <laughs> Before we go to you, James, um, Kim, what was it like when Reggie in those early years of him having to, to be a lawyer to this really new art form and also doing business with these new figures you know, he's sort of writing, he's, he's writing the script as he goes along. Yeah, I think, you know, he definitely um, bridged the gap between hip-hop artists and what we traditionally think of when we think of attorneys. So I think that's what made um, him and that law firm very appealing. But also in the early days, I know Reggie was still really just starting out. I remember uh, when we were speaking, you told us a story about how your father really helped them really get off the ground. He did. My father actually um, had an office in Midtown Manhattan, and he um, he charged them he charged them two hundred dollars a month for the rent, and that's how they were able to be in that location. You guys are quiet like that wasn't like <laughs> yeah two hundred dollars at any point in New York City. Yeah, I was um, definitely could not have done that without that rent. Yeah, right. Exactly. So when did you come into Reggie's purview? Were you in the, uh, the $200 office? I wasn't in the $200 office. But so like, you know, when I was um, when I graduated from law school, I started working at a law firm in Texas. And um, and the guys I was working for, we did all products liability cases and it was all litigation based. So it was basically, you know, uh, pra the practice of law for for profit and for and, and for, you know, as a business. So I had a, a good understanding on how it worked and how to, how to make my numbers and what I needed to do. And when I came to New York, it was quite different. I started working with Ed and Reggie because they were practicing more from the heart and for the art and for the love of the art. And so with that, the, there was, it was, the emphasis was that you, you love the art and you practice from the heart and, and the money will come. 
right? And I, that was a real, like, yeah. challenging thing for me to understand. I mean, I think the thing with him was he he did the attorney thing because that was practical, but he really wanted to be, I think, on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was the whole, but that was the whole so, office with the exception of yeah. Ian, who's in the audience, I'm not gonna put you on blast, <laughs> and maybe you, Jimmy, did you have a rap career before? You were no, no, no. <laughs> every every other, the other nah, three nah, attorneys nah. in the office, yeah. Reggie and, and Matt all really wanted to be rappers. And they knew these, and they knew these cats from school and growing up and everything. And so there was a lot of creative energy mm-hmm. um, in the office. And it was, it was also like very much about relationships like yeah. they they are where I learned the importance of relationships yep. in this business because Ed and Reggie used to yell out to each other yo do you have a relationship with such and such can you reach out for me and it wasn't just do you have his number do you have a contact it was like do you have a relationship with meaning right. can you walk me in this door right. can you get them on the phone and through them that's where I really realized it wasn't just about the clients yeah. and the whatever it was really about relationships. And then also his whole family image definitely attracted people because it was like, okay, this man, he's married, family. It's like, okay, I can kind of trust this person who has those, <laughs> those values. While Ed was standing on top of a table someplace. <laughs> it was a good balance. It was a great balance. It was really challenging, though, to, to, to try and understand it initially because, again, um, you know, the money wasn't there all the time. So you, they, would, they would support these artists in their careers just based off of belief. But the, the cash wasn't flowing through, and I didn't understand that, right? So that was always like, you know, as a new young lawyer looking for growth, and with this being one of the first offices that was kind of emphasizing, mm-hmm. you know, supporting rappers and, 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 and R&B artists, it was, it, was, it was challenging, you know, because there wasn't a lot of money floating around. So I have a couple questions. Um, one, can you just help um, kind of bring the audience into the world of like, who were some of the people on your roster and the clients and the people you guys were dealing with, the people you had relationships with? All the hitmen producers yeah. from Bad Boy. The summer, the year I was there, we did the Shine deal. Clark Kent. Clark Kent, Noriega. Chico DeBarge. Harlem World. DMX. Kelly Price. Um, I'm missing some people. No, I remember, listen, I did, um, I remember I, I, D-Dot, I remember when Kanye was signed to D-Dot and I did the wow. deal. Wow. Yeah, wow. that was crazy. I remember doing that deal, and I look back oh. at it now, and I was like, you know, I was like, who is this dude, Kane? Kane, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, we had my son yeah, before my, my son, son got arrested. Yeah. Um, my son got his deal in the in the parking lot of Justin's. In the parking lot of Justin's, I remember that. Yeah. And my son and Sean would be battling outside. And then he went Justin's. to jail. And then he, mm. and we had um, <laughs> who else? There's a and then there was you know then there were producers and there were basically any any person who was making noise and rap at the time, somebody either some affiliation with the label, somebody on the project, on the production side, on the something, they came through yeah, that office. That office. That yeah. office. Just every every big deal that was happening at the time. You guys are talking about this roster. Um, I think, you know, in the episode, in our conversation, you were talking about even just the lifestyle away from it of like, you know, attending parties and all the things that came with being um, hip hop at that time. Looking back on it now, these are early days writing the code that many people would go on to take and use and, and employ in their jobs and their careers. What do you make of Osean Woods now looking back? I mean, I think they were definitely pioneers. And so they opened the door for black attorneys, right? To say, we don't have to work for a huge firm. We can set up shop on our own and become successful. Yeah, no, 100%. I think, um, you know, I was their first associate, right? So I was the guy who was running around doing 
any and everything. And I think that what I learned in that period of time that I worked there was, was the confidence to go out and do it on your own in New York City. I think the other work. thing for me, um, having gone on to become like an actual label executive, that was the first example I saw of walking the line between being in the mix and being professional they really broke a mold. Like when they walked into conference rooms, people didn't know what to expect because they really were like hip hop attorneys. Yeah, they would put on a suit and everything, but they had swagger and walk like their clients, right? And what was special about all of them at this point in time, like maybe agents might come outside, managers might come outside, lawyers weren't outside. And outside means like out at the close. In the mix. Yeah, they weren't outside, but like, we went, we left the office, we went to Justin's. We left the office, we went to wherever. Like we were out and in it. And that was important too, because they wanted to see that their lawyers were like out in the same space that they were and could see and understand them and what they were doing and what they were going through. They liked seeing that their lawyers knew Puff and could give Puff a pound. You know what I mean? Like they liked that, like, oh, you know him, know him. Okay, you know, I rock with you, I can trust you. And there, there wasn't a blueprint. Like you said, there wasn't a foundation. People, like the, um, the commercialization and commodification of hip hop was happening at that time. And, you know, I think their impact is kind of hard to be understood right now because hip hop has been such a big business for so long. But at the time, the reason we had all those people on our roster was because a lot of the big firms didn't take them seriously. And, and this firm did. But then once people saw the money, you know, it was like, oh, we'll take that. We'll take that. We got that. We're good there. But, you know, at one time they were the biggest black entertainment law firm in the country. Before I let you guys go, I got to ask, um, were there any traces of Combat Jack in the office or was he just, he was Reggie, the attorney? Reggie if you got lawyer. Reggie in storytelling mode, Reggie could always tell a fantastic story. Like he could always tell a fantastic story and it would be stories where it's like, you were holding that all this time and I didn't <laughs> know, like, like, cause he would come out with the most outlandish shit and he'd be like, that didn't happen. But it, but it was like a real story. So yeah, when you could get him in that space, he could tell you like the most amazing stories. So those glimpses were there. And I think also just the discipline, like from just having that legal background, when he was preparing for a show, he would study, you know, and so it was very regimented. And um, it was just, I mean, he would go through the material and it was, that was definitely the law background to being able to do that quickly. Because in law school, you have to read how many, like a million pages a night. Yeah. That's all you do. <laughs> right. Yeah. So for sure. Well, you all, thank you so much. Um, you guys give it up. After the break, we bring the cast of the Combat Jack show back together. And of course, they're as wild as you think they'd be. Hey, Mogul listeners. The show is coming back in September. In the meantime, if you haven't heard the first season of Mogul, now's a good time to go check it out. It tells the story of the rise and tragic fall of hip-hop executive Chris Lighty. Over the course of his career, Lighty worked with some of the biggest names in hip-hop. Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, LL Cool J. And he discovered an unknown rapper from the Bronx. This guy. Now he told me, no, you're a big rapper. You're going to be a big rapper. I was like, what? You know what I'm saying? He saw Fat Joe before Fat Joe saw Fat Joe. Lighty was a king and a king maker. But his story does not have a happy ending. The first season of Mogul tries to understand what happened. Why someone who climbed so high could fall so far. 
You can listen to season one of Mogul on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Now we're getting ready to transition to a moment where I'm sure many of you knew Reggie. It's how I met Reggie. Um, and that's Reggie Osei as he becomes Combat Jack. Reggie's run at Combat Jack, I think, is something that really could have only been made at that time. I think about the early days of the blog era, the golden era. Um, some of you guys probably don't know what that is. But for me, it's like it's one of my favorite times. It was the point where Reggie, after leaving Osei and Woods, was able to take this sort of... Um, unknown, ambiguous figure that he created Combat Jack as a blogger, telling these very in-depth and unique and personal stories from deep behind the industry lines, and eventually morphing that into a very public persona that we would go on to see um, at the Combat Jack show when it initially debuted on online radio. Eventually that show would transition and go to podcasting, but um, Reggie would still use those same, those same tricks and tools and trades, ones that we just heard about, but he didn't do it alone. Reggie did this with a very unique cast. I'm sure you guys have all heard the Combat Jack show. He did this with a very unique cast of what I call the extraordinary gentlemen. So I'm going to bring them all out on stage. First up, Dallas Penn. I'm still here. He's still here. Internet, I'm still here. I'm still here. Next up, let's bring up A King. A. Of course, we got to bring up Premium Pete, fresh off vacation. One thing I think, um, I take away so many of the stories and the conversations you guys would have with guests, but I think one of the bigger takeaways, and I think what, when you listen to podcasts today, what a lot of people are trying to create um, is that energy you guys had as a group. It just felt so unique, and it really felt like here's a group of guys that have jumped on this podcast, this, this, this audio platform, and aren't imitating. This is really them, and it feels like the thing that we all have at home, that we kind of have to tuck away when we go to work, the thing that we can't like bring out in the public, and you guys were here making it your work. You know, I think it was uh, early on. It was, you know, none of us were really working for a check. You know, we were waiting for a check, and that's how much we believed in, in, in what we were doing. Even though, at the time, I remember meeting with people, and, you know, you look at the state of podcasting now, it's, 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 it's the it thing to do. And I remember at that time, people were like, oh, you got a podcast? Oh, that's cute. <laughs> and, you know, it was the unknown, but we're here, you know, today. And you all jumped out there and brought this unique energy. How would you describe it? Because for me, it feels like being outside or like those, like, when you're at the barbershop and it's the dudes outside, you know, not getting their haircut, but they're at the barbershop. It felt like that, like just that friendly camaraderie. But you guys were also no holds barred. You were all friends, but you guys would do that. If you enjoy the Combat Jack show, the, the recorded version, the, what you would have gone apeshit for were the two hours, two and a half hours we spent in the studio in PNC while A-King uploaded the show to, to be a hard file to be listened to later because our shows at PNC initially, they were streamed live. So while it's being streamed live, it's being, it's being recorded, but it wasn't being saved. It took the same amount of time we recorded, if the show was two hours or the show was three hours, whatever it was, it took that time, same time in real time, to upload it. So we would then chill there with A-King, because A-King would, would do all of this. And if we left, he'd still system, be there. <laughs> but, but we'd stay with him. We'd stay with you, because it also gave us a place 
to do fuck shit. All <laughs> yeah. the, the fuck shit that took place when the microphone went off. Talk about it. Was is the best thing that y'all will never hear. And and you know, just having this collection of different characters, all disparate, all kind of you know, in their own ways, individual fucktards being together and and once these guys got together i mean that was it but but a king is a he is, he's a visionary and he loves this thing and and for years me and pete have been have been determined to try and get a tear out of a king's eye and if y'all will help us do that tonight hey no, <laughs> king yo, that's not happening yo i i, 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 I tell you get get now, when, you know, it's crazy. Uh, rest in peace to uh, our brother Sean Price. Uh, one time for Sean Price. Yep. Pete. Pete. You know, one Pete. of my favorite moments of the Combat Jack shows when we had Sean. I mean, Sean Price was the first, well, besides Boston and, and, and just one of the first episodes. You know, I remember we went to go take a group pick and we were sitting there. All Everybody was, you know, all Brooklyned up, like, you know, like just, just. Next thing you know is we had a guy from High Times on, the guy Danny Denko. So everybody was smoking. Um, we were sitting there all, 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 all b-boyed up, all brooklyn up. Meanwhile, realizing after 10 minutes, no, there was no one in front of us to take a picture. <laughs> no one. Me and the whole crew and Sean Price. And, and I, I, I'll never forget this. It's one of my favorite moments. You know, I haven't smoked in 20 years. And that night I smoked. And uh, I, the room was spinning. And I remember we went to, uh, uh, Just Blaze brought us, uh, we met Just Blaze at this uh, electric bowery uh, for Mon Mobile Mondays. And I remember Combat was dancing. He loved the house music and he was dancing. And, 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 and Dallas was doing the soul clap. And I was so high, the fucking soul clap was running through my heart. <laughs> and I remember they, they, they literally walked into, they ran into this other room. And I thought there was a problem. So I'm ready to, like, I went from being so happy to being like, what's, what's the matter with my people? And I ran into the other room, and I swear to God, it looked like it, nobody had a problem. Nobody had a bill. Nobody had any issue. And they were dancing to all this house music. And Just Blaze was battling them in, in, in this fucking circle. Like a dance battle? Like a dance battle. And I remember Combat was, he didn't have no floor moves, so he was doing some top moves, and Dallas was doing some top moves. And that was, and, 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 and Just was burning him. So I remember him doing some move and shit, and he walked away. And I was like, nah, man, I can't let that happen to my Combat Jack Show family. So nobody knew that I knew how to break dance. So, 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 so I tapped Just on his shoulder, and I just did some floor work, a windmill, back to a head spin. Something light. Something light. Something light. And I was... And and here's you want to demonstrate. And here's the you nah, want to nah, demonstrate. No, nah, nah, I'm good. But here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. I was high as fuck. And shouts to Matt Raz. Matt Raz Matt. was right next to me. Where's and when it? I came back, he was like, you know, I, I I came in the circle. And when I came back, he was like, holy shit, that was amazing. And I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Just went. I went again. And then he came back. He was like, ah, eh, that that wasn't that good, you know. <laughs> Then I like did some move where I went underneath Just Blaze's legs, and then I came back to Matt because Matt was my coach, and he was like, "Yeah, that was suspect." <laughs> but the bottom line is, 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 you know, speaking in moments like that, is even though he's not here today, 
you know, whether he meant to do this or not, he formed the brotherhood. You know, he formed, you know, he formed a lot of people who love each other and love him. You know, um, I say this all the time, man. You know, I didn't have a bigger brother. You know, um, combat, that's how I looked at him. You know, um, you know, special moments. You know, Dallas invited me, you know, to come on in 2010. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know I'd be here today. You know, it's um He's going to shed the man. tear that you're trying to get from me. He's going to shed it for me. I know. I know. He, he cries. He's, he's Italian. He cries. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's he, not about he, he that. He cries watching Goodfellas. You get a tear from him for, for free. I want that tear from you, A-King. Can you, oh, look at this fucking guy. <laughs> just, hey, you guys give it up for Just Blaze. <laughs> at this point in our live show, Just Blaze, the iconic hip-hop producer and former Combat Jack Show cast member, walked in and joined the guys on stage. His timing was perfect. Yo, a couple of times, let me tell you something. I never forget, I had like $100 in my bank account. And this guy showed up at the studio from a helicopter. And I was like, yo, <laughs> one day we'll make it. Um, we want to jump to this clip real quick of uh, just how Combat Jack, away from the microphone, how he would operate behind the scenes. Reggie's thing was always complimenting people. That was one of his like go-to moves. He would compliment you on whatever you were wearing. So like, it took me a while, because he'd always be like, Chris, you look good. Did you just lose weight? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, definitely like that. That's uh, actually a great uh, analogy by Chris. Do you remember the compliment he gave you the most like when he'd see you? Chris, I love your sneakers. Where'd you get those? Yo, that's a dope fucking hoodie, man. Like, Where'd you get that? Like. Well, you get that book bag. You've been in the gym? <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> right, yeah. And at first I was like, oh, thanks, man. You know, and then I was like, Reg, come on, man, stop it. And he was like, I know, but like, this is a good thing to do to people. I think that was his style of conversation, though. Like of how he, it, he Reggie was weird, man. As funny as it is, like he's a warrior, but he's like, I kind of I want to say he was shy. I know it may sound weird, but like meaning like, so he would use like those type of, you know, style to like break someone down. I remember when I first met Reggie, he did tell me I had a nice jacket. And so I, every time I saw him, he would give me a compliment. I was like, I'm killing it. But he was just being nice. He, he wasn't just being nice. I mean, he, remember, he's an artist also. So he loves details. So if he sees something where detail catches his eye, he likes it. I mean, I'm, I'm dressed up for Reggie tonight. And, and there's no reason anyone should feel any kind of way about dressing up for somebody, guy or girl. All right, I was, I was relating a story that Maya Angelou was, was telling where um, she would go visit her, before she had became rich and famous, she would go visit her, her girlfriend. So she would, might go see her mom. And she didn't have no bread at the time, but she would take out the best dress she had and she would iron it. You know, she would clean it up for that visit that she was gonna have because of the reverence she had for the company that she was about to keep. And, and I mean, that, that's all, that, that, that was the, one of the main reasons I love coming to the show, was to put on something where Reggie might be like, yo, what's that? You know? And then when Just Blaze joined, I was like, oh shit. You know, you always gotta keep something for Just Blaze. Yeah, we used to, we used to, <laughs> you always gotta we keep used to something for Just Blaze. You we used to have no <laughs> but, but I mean, it's, you know, he's not just being nice. He studies the details. And when he gives you that compliment, he's basically saying that, boom, I see you study the details. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving respect to what you, what you found. So favorite moment on the Combat Jack show, your personal favorite. Oh, man. I don't know. There was so many. Um, I saw him too, Pete. 
I was like, yeah, it was a nice. Probably, I, I would probably say, have to say the Dame uh, episode. The legendary Dame oh, Dash yes. episode. That was great. Rhinestone Bell Buckle. <laughs> it's free Which to clap. It's cool worn. if y'all want to clap along that. That was an amazing episode. I remember right. if you, the people that, I remember listening and then the people that weren't listening that were around me, that was the episode that they caught on to the Combat right. Jack show. And then you worked your way backwards, you know? Right. Yeah, it was kind of, I think that was a, um, it was a pivotal moment for the show in general. Okay, so I'm going to stop the show real quick to talk about this because it's one of my favorite moments from the Combat Jack show. In short, Rockefeller head honcho Dame Dash and superstar producer Jess Blaze had a contentious relationship to say the least. That would result in a series of roast sessions, one of which was captured live on the Combat Jack show. At the time... I wouldn't have did it to you if it was another different one. But you, like I said, that wasn't, that incident didn't go too far. That's funny. where it started. Whatever went too far? I, oh, when you had the rhinestone belt buckle? I never rhinestone had a, belt buckle. I never had a rhinestone oh, belt buckle. Bedazzle? Don't even try it. Rhinestone, rhinestone bedazzle? No, I did not. Don't even. Like you got me confused with somebody else. You no, got, no, you're, you're not lying. You have me you confused. Have was it rhinestone or was it bedazzle? Never. When did you get the maddest? I never. What made you the maddest? Like a rhinestone cow. What made you mad specifically? I never had a rhinestone belt buckle. No, I did not. No, I did not. Was it rhinestone? There was a time. Hold up. No, hold up. There was a time where there was a time where I got one sent to me that I did not wear. <laughs> I had it in the studio. Did I wear it? Never. No, so never. Wait, wait, no, I did not have it. That's why I said something about okay, it. Why did I remember it? Time out. Time out. I was like a rhinestone. I'm like a rhinestone. Ever. Never. Ever. Did you? I think for fans, it was um, it was like one of the earlier pieces of like content that was just cathartic. Like where you were like, oh, these guys forget the mold. They're just going to kind of go out here and just throw what they had in their bag on the table right. and go back and forth. And for us in the galley, it was it was fun to watch, but also kind of gave us a peek behind the scenes of maybe what it was like at Rockefeller. Oh, yeah, it was like that every day. But it was but you guys yeah. were in control. It wasn't like a, an interviewer dictating right. this. Right. Yeah, it was, like I said, it was very much just like, all right, here we are 13 years later. You wore a brownstone belt buckle. You know, and a fake jersey, and and, and a fake Los Jets jersey. I mean, that's probably my favorite moment. One thing I do want to say is I want to give a big shout out to a Kim. Um, I remember the first check I ever got from Combat Jack Show <laughs> it had a Kim Van's name on it. <laughs> you know, let me tell you something. Let me tell you, you know, this entrepreneur shit ain't easy, man. You know, starting a podcast ain't easy. Everything looks good. It's a dysfunctional family, man, that a lot of people don't get a chance to see. Not just the Combat Jackson, just in general. And sometimes it takes people to believe in it behind the scenes that make it happen in front of the scenes. So I'm thankful. You know, Thank you. Jinx, before you take it back. Um, <laughs> you saw me trying. I was like, yes, right. you. I've learned. I've learned. You know, you put in, uh, you know, I've learned this, this podcast is just like double Dutch. Some people may know what that means. Um, you got to know when to get in. Um, you know, one thing I will say this is, is, is I think one thing I'm real proud of is that Reggie was able to live his dream. You know, the fact of idolizing people like LL Cool J and then having them, you know, reach out to him or become friends with him. You know, some people, one thing I find funny is that some people actually thought Combat Jack was a real name. I remember people used to be like, yo, what's up, Jack? You know what I mean? I was like, oh, all right. These people don't know his name is Reggie. But he was able to sit down with some people that he idolized. And what the podcast game is, and some people are still learning this today, is become friends with. 
and build with and work with or do things with. And for that, you know, I mean, I'm thankful that we're, we're all able to make that happen. You know, that was a moment that, you know, I, I say this all the time, but people used to, like, combat used to ask all the time, like, oh, you think people listen to us? I remember we went to our first A3C in 2011, and we were in the elevator. And they're like, yo, what are you guys doing here? He's like, yo, Combat Jack Show, you heard of it? They're like, nah. And he was like, yo, Pete, they don't know us. And then later on, man, you know, I travel all over the place. Everywhere I go, people come up to me. And don't say Premium Pete. They say, yo, thank you for the Combat Jack Show. I think for me, you're talking about being acknowledged, you know, um, to even get a chance to even uh, share a stage with you all, you guys don't really understand. I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience that feel the same way. Um, you know, the link would come up and we would tune in just to hear what was going on. You know, I think it set the mold for a lot of us that are going to participate in that space, but most people stay customers, most people stay fans. And we got a chance to build our own favorite moments to make everyone talking about hip hop lists. You could go through your list of Combat Jack episodes, which one you think is the best. You know, episodes where sometimes it'd be devoid of a guest and it'd just be y'all talking. And I think you guys got a chance to be a lot of people's favorites. You know, you go from 2011, no one knows your name, but here we are in 2019. And I mean, the, the impact is immeasurable. So personally, as someone that gets a chance to walk in this path and to um, take on challenges that you guys take on, I'm personally thankful just as a fan. Um, but before we let you guys go, I need to get everybody else's favorite moments of the Combat Jack show. Dallas, I'm going to need them to be remotely censored. Mm -hmm. I, I will do that. I can do that. You can start it off in A-King. I'm going to say uh, when we had Red Man. And simply because I think Red Man is, is one of my favorite all-time rappers who um, never would never get the acclaim that he, I think he deserved. Um, his content was, was Eminem before Eminem. My favorite, favorite, favorite... Reggie moment, though? Yeah, that's favorite Reggie moment. Okay, my favorite Reggie moment. Um, I had sold my entire comic book collection to pay a drug debt. <laughs> Facts. Remotely censored, all right. Facts. I was, I was, I was failed, I, I was a failed drug mule. And I sold my whole collection. You lost collection. 96 bricks? <laughs> 92 bricks? consignment is only for live men. Okay. Not for freshmen. So, uh, in this entire collection, man, tons of hot, hot fire comics. But this one kind of like collectible that I loved was called The Art of John Byrne. And uh, Reggie met me in the city one day. And I was like, yo, I, you got to come see me. I got something for you. And I'm like, all right, bet, bet. And he gives me this uh, envelope. And inside is a mint condition copy of the art of John Byrne, like my favorite comic artist. We debate about comic artists all the time. I love John Byrne, he liked Jack Kirby. I'm X-Men, he's Daredevil. You know, we, we go back and forth on these things. But he gave me a mint condition copy of the art of John Byrne. So, I mean, that's, again, he studies the details. So I, I always appreciate that. Hey King, your favorite Reggie moment. Reggie moment? Uh, I mean, to me, I, I see Reggie in combat, but your favorite moment? One of my favorite show moments was when 4Local was uh, getting ready to be banned. Oh. 
Jesus. from from stores, and somehow Dallas Penn found the last four four locos in Brooklyn, and he brought them to the show. Now at that moment, I didn't have four loco, right? So we we didn't have any guests that that day, and uh, we drank the four loco before we started. Well, during the show, and it was the wildest experience because. I don't think anybody was named proper, like, mine. Whatever the ingredient was in Four Local that they was banning, that really fucked us up, that, that, yeah. that episode. Um, another many great moments that I, that, I, that, I, um, you know, that I fuck with personally was when we did the Complex show. And as Pete said and Dallas said earlier, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes shit that y'all, I mean, if y'all saw that shit, um, shout-out to Eli. He was one of our producers for the complex show um i mean we, we they, they gutted out like a storefront in bushwick we had a set that was like Boise. some night tv show type shit and i remember we had um buster was our guest and they're doing an interview and i think part of this is on youtube if y'all want to look it up a rat just flies across the room and Buster had like this six foot eight bodyguard dude. He jumped on top of a chair. And <laughs> it was the wildest shit. And then like, I think somewhere in the episode two, <laughs> something fell on Combat's shoulder and he dove the rope. <laughs> and he got, he, you know, it's amazing. But if you go to YouTube, you'll see that stuff. But I mean, I could go on and on, but those are some of my most immediate, you know, uh, moments. I want to keep my talking limited, but um, the uh, the group therapy episode. I think up until that point, as close and as friendly as we all were, genuinely, you know, I feel like up until that point, a lot of us were dealing with each other's representatives and not with the actual people. You know what I mean? But I think that was also the first time that a lot of us really just spoke on the level that we did. Right. The dysfunction is part of what made the show great. You know what I mean? Like the fact that every five minutes you had to rein Dallas in. The fact that every five minutes you had to look at everybody like, yo, time, clock, you know what I mean? Every five minutes, peace where everybody's checked, you know, and he's about to walk out, you know, and me just kind of sitting there going, what the hell did I get myself into? Like it was, that was, that was part of the greatness of it. Word. Again, um, I think from what we've heard tonight about Reggie's life um, growing up, Reggie's life as a lawyer, Reggie's life as a family man, and then Reggie as Combat Jack, as I knew him, as many people here knew him. Um, what I like is the most is that um, even that clip about the compliments is how consistent it is, that this guy really, he was who he was and he wore it everywhere. Um, and I think Combat Jack was just a way to magnify that and let other people see that broadcast. And I think you all, um, together as a collective, just did something that was unseen in this space and now it's become a template. So for you all, and you guys give me a big round of applause. I'm thankful for you all. And the first time I met Pete, I accidentally said the word internets. And he, he I don't even, he wasn't, I wasn't even in the room with him. I said it and he popped up out like the ceiling or something. Like he just showed up and was like, yo, where'd you get that from? You know who said that? And I was, and I very quickly let him know I knew who said it. And he was like, all right, bet. Just always pay homage. So tonight, we want to make sure that we pay homage to Combat Jack. He ended every episode the same way when it came to the Combat Jack show. Um, we're going to throw the words up on the screen behind us. So I'm going to count you guys down because we tried this in a group in, the, in the, the practice of this. It was a little difficult. All right, so 
Actually, you want to set it off, Pete? I feel like you I'll got the tempo. It. Yeah. All right. You guys join in. Yo, internet. Let's join in now. You know what it is. Dream those dreams. That man up and woman up and live those dreams. Because the life without dreams is black and white. And the universe flows with technical and surround sound. Black. Chit chit. You got to this guy. To play us out, we have Reggie's eldest son, Chuma. He goes by I Don't Know Him. And you can find him on all streaming platforms at IDKHIM. Mogul will be back on September 18th with a new season, so watch your feed for it. If you haven't yet heard the first season of Mogul, it tells the story of hip-hop executive Chris Lighty. You can listen to it all on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. I want to take a moment to thank the Colorectal Cancer Alliance. Right before we lost Reggie, he used the hashtag Combat Cancer. And we partnered with the CCA to keep spreading that message. If you post on social, please join us in hashtagging Combat Cancer to keep Reggie's fight alive. You can get information about symptoms, how to get screened, and who is most at risk by visiting ccalliance.org. That's ccalliance.org. Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This live show is produced by Gabby Bugarelli, who absolutely killed it. We also got an assist from A. King, helped us connect all the dots. And I got to shout out our other producers, Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijan Thomas. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson, who made sure that Premium Pete got his mile back backstage. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. This episode was mixed by Sam Baer. Music supervision by Matthew Bowl and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Our theme music is by So Wiley. And our credits music is by I Don't Know Him. You can find him on all streaming platforms at IDKHIM. Thank you to all the folks at Gimlet who helped to pull this event off. We had our engineers making sure the sound was pristine, people decorating the space, and podcasters carrying a couch to the venue. So shout out to all the Gimleteers who helped make this live show special. Austin Thompson, Peter Leonard, Tony Magyar, Alice Kors, Daniela Rea, Julia Kaplan, Peter Bresnan, and Jen Hans. And of course, thank you to everyone who came out. It was a beautiful night. Follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mobile. Peace. <laughs>